Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Second Samuel chapter 10 this morning. That's page uh, 261 of the Church Bibles or uh, page 307 of the large print. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with a thousand men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maka were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, And he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians And they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan 
and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? If you were here last week, you will remember that those were the words of uh, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. They were the words of of Mephibosheth, the, the man who was crippled in his feet. And there were his words in, in response to King David drawing near to him, not, not with a sword, but with mercy. Mephibosheth was expecting certain death, for he was from the line of the enemy king Saul, and he was helpless in his disability. He had lived a life of despair, and yet he received mercy. He received protection, provision, and position. He received the kindness of the king, undeserved, unexpected, abundant grace. It was an astonishingly beautiful picture of the gospel. For here was David in in shadow form, showing us something of the Lord Jesus' kindness and welcome to sinners. For we are all Mephibosheths, deeply in need of a king who, who loves the lame and a doctor who heals the sick. Those who have placed their trust in Christ all unite with Mephibosheth saying, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Who am I, Lord, that you would do this for me? It is the right response, isn't it? The only response to such lavish grace, to such extraordinary kindness. Well, it may be the only right response, the only fitting response to such grace. But chapter 10 here this morning is is showing us that sadly, tragically, it, it is not the only response we're here this morning, we, we have a story that is, is all about spurning the king's kindness. It's all about those who despise the kindness of the king. And so this morning, I, I want to help us to, to see the folly of that, to, to see the wickedness of, of seeing the king's kindness and, and turning away. And then what I want us to look at what, what the right response to the king's rule is. Number one, firstly, if if you're taking notes, um, point number one, foreign folly. I wonder, as I was reading the passage um, earlier for us, if if you just notice that the striking similarities between chapter 10 and and chapter 9. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, 
and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. And look back at, at chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Right, right from the outset of both of these chapters, here is David seeking to show kindness, to show loyalty. Really, those, those two words, kindness and loyalty, that they're actually the same word here. It's the idea of steadfast love. And notice that the similarity of the context too. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan his son reigned in his place. In chapter 9, we had Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. In other words, we have a grandson in the enemy line of the dead king. And here we have a dead king and his son acceding to his throne the writer is wanting us to see the similarities of these two accounts to help us to see the differences. For here is the first difference. This time it is not a fellow Israelite, but an Ammonite king. It's a foreign king. So we, so we have the same problem as last week. What was King David to do in a world where the lesson of history is to eat your enemy before they eat you? How would David deal with a people whose past negotiating tactics is gouging out Israelite eyes? I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, he says, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now, we're not told anything um, here about David's uh, relationship uh, with Nahash um, elsewhere. So we just get what we have here but perhaps Nahash uh, provided aid to David uh, when Saul was tracking him down. But we don't actually know if there was a covenant or, or some sort of treaty between the two. But what we do know is that David felt an obligation to show kindness. There is no kind of convenient forgetting on David's part here. No, no double backing or, or wiggling out of his values. No backstabbing, but it's faithful treatment and so, verse 2, David sends his servants to console Hanan concerning his father. He shows kindness and empathy in his loss. We've seen this on a, a rather big scale recently, haven't we, with uh, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. 500 foreign dignitaries were sent to Westminster Abbey to show compassion and respect to the late monarch. It was quite an incredible display of, of solidarity. And that's what the Ammonites are supposed to see here. But, verse 3, there is deep suspicion. The princes of the Ammonites, Hanan's right-hand men, his advisors, they sow the seed of doubt in Hanan's mind. Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? They're saying, you know, wise up, Hanan. Do you really think another king would be so faithful, so kind, so sincere in his intentions? Don't you see that, that David must have some ulterior motive in his coming? The seed of doubt is sown about the king's character, isn't it? And it sounds so much like the serpent in the garden. 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. At the heart of the serpent's attack was the denial of God's goodness, wasn't it? Is what he says really true? He doesn't really have your best interests at heart. And so it is here with David, God's anointed king, showing us and Hanan the kindness of God. And it's met with suspicion. They, they treat his kindness, I suppose, like most of us treat a free lunch. You know, thanks for the food, but, you know, why, why are we really here? Hanan's princes say, look at what he must be interested in. Has not David sent his servants to, to you to search the city and to spy out and to overthrow it? That's what David's after, Hanan. He's not interested in, in loyalty, but he, he's interested in your land. And, and land has always and will always be of um, utmost importance to uh, world leaders. I've recently uh, been reading um, a book uh, that the unfortunate ones among you will have heard me whitter on about already, um, but those who haven't, um, this book's called uh, Prisoners of Geography, and in the, in the book, the author is, is trying to help, help people understand um, global politics um, by looking at, at 10 maps of the world, and he has a section talking about, about Russia and He's writing this book in 2015, trying to help us understand why they do things. But here's what he said to start his book. Vladimir Putin says he is a religious man, a great supporter of the Russian Orthodox Church. If so, he may well go to bed each night, say his prayers and ask God, why didn't you put some mountains in Ukraine? If God had built mountains in Ukraine, then the great expanse of flatland that is the North European plain would not be such an encouraging territory from which to attack Russia repeatedly. Writing it in 2015, he, he talks of, of Russian fears and agendas all centered around its land and territory around it, all to do with self-interest and, and self-preservation and, and that is true of, of all empires, of, of the Athenian Empire, the, the Persians, the Babylonians. It's true of every leader seeking high ground from which to protect their tribe. And it's true of the Ammonites here. They are incredibly anxious over their lands. For look what they do, verse 4. So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard the beard of each, and, and cut off their garments in the middle of their hips. Just think back to, to all those foreign dignitaries arriving for um, the queen's funeral. Can you imagine the uproar if the yeomen of the guard gathered them all up, shaved their heads, took their trousers, and sent them back to their countries? And, and if you think that's bad, this was to people into a culture where, where the beard was a mark of honor and dignity and to shave it expressed sorrow and mourning but but to have it forcibly shaved was was deeply humiliating one commentator suggests that the indignities heaped on them are a grotesque parody of the normal symbolic actions 
that accompanied mourning. It's why the men were were greatly ashamed, verse 5. It's one thing doubting the king's goodness, isn't it? But it's very different to respond to him in wickedness. Hanan is despising the kindness of the king. It's why the Ammonites become a stench to David, verse 6. They've seen his kindness. They've experienced his faithfulness. And look at how they treat him. And so as it was for God's anointed king then, so it is today. We experience God's kindness to us every moment of our lives. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the jobs we work, the relationships we enjoy, all of them, absolutely all of them, are given to us by the Lord. We are totally dependent upon the God who made us and the God who sustains us. And of course, most of all, the kindness he has shown us in the Lord Jesus. He has spared us from his righteous judgment falling upon us. And each moment that we are spared from God's wrath is an experience of the riches of his kindness. It's a taste of God's extraordinary patience. And yet, what are many people doing today? They, as the Apostle Paul would put it, they are presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Far from responding to the Lord's mercy and praise and wonder and awe, they say, no, thanks. It's, it's all about me. I brought this about for myself. They're despising his kindness. For what does he go on to say? Do you presume on or despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The fact that the Lord hasn't returned is often uh, used as a a dig at Christians, isn't it? You know, if God was really in control, don't, don't you think he would have come back by now? Well, look at what's really happening. God is delaying his judgment. In his inestimable kindness, he has not revealed his righteous judgment yet. The axe is laid at the root of the tree, yes, but he has not cut it down because he is patient. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me urge you to to not make the mistake of Hanan here. Let me encourage you to, to come to King Jesus, to receive his kindness and repent. That word repent, it it means to turn around from the way you're walking and go the other way. It means not not following your own rules, but the laws of a good king. Not the laws of a repressive ruler, but of a kind king with your very best interests at heart. For that is what King Jesus is like. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He he is not reluctant to extend his kindness. 
He does not begrudgingly extend his hand of mercy. No, he loves to forgive. He loves to shower us in his lavish love, both at that initial moment of repentance and each day for the rest of our lives. If you're a Christian here this morning, maybe that's what you need to hear. This king who rules and reigns, he also draws near. He does not keep his distance from us. You know, we, we sin and we, we think we need to stay away. Surely God wants nothing to do with us right now. You know, better keep my distance for a while. No, this is not a cruel and harsh king. No, he is full of welcome for, for sinners like you and me. Or perhaps it is um, not your sense of the king's kindness that weighs you down. But it's living in a world of rejection of this king. Perhaps you, you haven't had the physical mockery that we see here, but you know exactly what it feels like to be greatly ashamed. You, you know what it feels like to stick out like a sore thumb. Perhaps you know of the mockery on the school playgrounds, the suspicion from friends, the, the accusations from the media, or or perhaps it's just a general disrespect you feel for, for being different. Well, in those moments of, of feeling alone and abandoned, take comfort from your king who, who, who knows and sees and, and draws near in compassion. You notice what David does when he, when he sees what's happened to his servants. He sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. There is opposition to the king, but the king never, ever loses sight of his people and their plights. And the opposition, it, it does continue, doesn't it? Look at verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David." The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Bethrehob, and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maka with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. They see the stench that they've become, and, and instead of, of turning and, and subjecting themselves, they, they press on in their stand against uh, David's kingdom. They hire a whole army of soldiers in rebellion against the king. And so the, the secret intelligence service it informs David and the military plans they start to form. He sends Joab and all the mighty men out in defense. But, but Joab very quickly realizes that the Ammonites and the Syrians have, have formed a, a pincer movement. He's going to have to fight a war on two fronts, in the front and in the rear, verse 9. And so he devises his plan to array his best men against the Syrians. And he sends the rest of his men to be under the charge of Abishai, his brother. And the strategy, it comes there in verse 11. If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. The battle plan is set. And then we get the commander's speech in verse 12. The words of Joab. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God 
and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I wonder if that bothered you as we, we read that earlier. Joab said that, really? You know, is that, is that really the same Joab that we saw in chapter 3? You know, Joab the murderer? Joab who vindictively killed Abner behind the king's back? And now he's, he's preaching to us? Well, here's uh, Dale Ralph Davis on Joab try, trying to help us to make sense of this. Here's what he says. Is this foxhole religion turning pious under duress? A little faith coming out the mouth as the rope tightens on the neck. Surely the writer can't be serious, can he? Even if he is, can we afford to allow this rascal Joab to preach truth to us? Could Joab be right? Should we listen to him? Well, why not? Why allow his unsavory character to eclipse the truth of his words? Can't even thugs speak truth? And that's what it is, isn't it? It's, it's truth from a thug. It's our, our second point this morning, truth from a thug. In these words from Joab, we're being shown, shown something that, that he recognizes something that the Ammonites and the Syrians don't. Joab knows that there is really only one king, and that king is the Lord, Yahweh, and he does and will do exactly as he pleases. It's all in the end of that verse. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Joab's trust in God here is actually the only mention of God in the whole chapter. And here it is showing us that nothing, absolutely nothing will thwart his rule. I mean, just look at what Joab's speech is sandwiched between. Verses 6 to 8, that big description of the Ammonite and Syrian army, which Joab himself is quite literally sandwiched between. It's a huge army seeking to conquer and destroy. Look at the outcome. Verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And verse 14, and when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. The writer is saying to us, look, here is the Lord doing exactly what pleases him. Exactly what seems good to him. The armies may be big and, and the situation bleak, but what is that when the Lord is in control? That's why it's so foolish, isn't it, that, that Hadadezer has no better sense than to get a bigger army and attack again. We saw a few weeks ago that the similarities with Psalm 2 in, in chapter 8. And again here, we have, if you like, a, a regionalized version of, of Psalm 2. The similarities are, are staggering. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 2 Samuel chapter 10 verse 17. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And they arrayed themselves. They literally set themselves against David, the Lord's anointed. It's the most foolish thing you can do. But look what happens. 
the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. It is possible to see the Lord's kindness, to, to experience his blessing and yet despise it. It's possible to, to spurn his kindness and not let it lead you to repentance. But friends, it is not possible to spurn his kindness and win. You cannot set yourself against God's king and win. For God's king is in control and he is coming to judge. King Jesus, the true king in whom David is foreshadowing here, is in control and you cannot set yourself against him and win. Here are Jesus' words in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by the, my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The king is coming and he calls you. He, he calls all of us to bow our knee to him. We can do that willingly in this life or, or forcefully, forcefully in the next, but the king will rule. We don't quite see the conclusion of, of what happens to the, the Ammonites today, do we? At this point, we, we simply learn that they are now on their own, verse 19. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. But there are some, aren't there, who, who realize that, that resisting the king's rule is, is futile. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to him. They're being wise, aren't they? They're kissing the sun, lest he be angry, lest they perish in the way. They realize what Joab realizes, that there is a king and he does as he pleases. And to close, brothers and sisters, those who have received the king's kindness, I just want us to, to dwell on those words from Joab. For, for those words from, from Joab, they, they flow from an understanding that, that the king is in control, that he will not be defeated. And I think they open up to us a world of comfort. Notice Joab's confidence was was not that he knew in advance what the Lord would do, was it? You know, he, he himself had, had no specific promise about deliverance from this war with the Ammonites and the Syrians. 
he knows that, that God is going to provide rest from enemies and David's kingdom is going to be established, sure, but he does not know exactly how God is going to achieve that. And the same is true of us collectively and individually. You know, there's no promise that it won't become illegal to teach the Bible sexual ethics. No promise that, that following Jesus won't lead to your sacking at work. No promise that we'll get all the money that we want for the building project. But what we know is that God has promised that he is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What we know is that our king is with us always to the end of the age. And so I, I hope that, that helps us to hold loosely to the things that we think must happen and to, to hold all the tighter to God's overarching promises. For what Joab knew and what we know is that the Lord would do good. For that is what a good God does. And, and faith is knowing that the Lord is good and, and does what is good. But that good is decided by God, not by us. To close, I just want to read something from um, John Calvin's sermon on, on this to, to help us understand that. Here's what he says. We certainly have this point which should firmly persuade us that God will never abandon us and that in the end he will show that our hope in him was not in vain so that our faith will not be frustrated when it rests upon his mercy and his truth. Nevertheless, we must remain in suspense about many things. For instance, when we ask God for our daily bread, it is not that we are assured that he will send us a good harvest or a great vintage. We should leave that in his hands and patiently await what pleases him. When we have any illness, we must rest well assured that he has not forgotten us and that we have such access to him that in the end, we will feel that he has looked on us in pity. Friends, take refuge in the king who comes to show kindness. In the uncertainties of life, tuck yourselves inside the certainty of God's promises. For his reign will never be thwarted and his promises will never be broken. Amen.